Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Hell, and there is so much about this doctrine that it's almost impossible to cover everything in a short one hour, but we'll just cover the main point. To many of us, it will be just a kind of like a little review what we did, what I did about five, six months ago. And we all know this word hell alone is just so popular in our vocabulary that even we ourselves, we use it on a daily basis. I know that me personally, sometimes when we have a very hot, hot days, and especially when I'm at work, I will say to my wife, "It's, it's hot like hell. And just not consciously, just, you know, realizing what I'm saying. And, you know, many people who are not even believers will use this word to describe many, many, many things. People joke about it. And, you know, the funny thing, I, I look at some jokes about hell. And I found one very interesting. I think you, everyone knows who Bill Gates is, right? So everyone knows who Bill Gates is. So I heard a joke about Bill, Bill Gates. One day he died. So when he, he died, so he met St. Peter. St. Peter told Bill Gates, he says, I don't know what to do with you. You've done so many evil things in your life that you deserve help. But on the other hand, you also have done so many good things that I could put you in, in heaven. But I don't know what to do. You know what? Just to make it fair, I'll give you a choice. I'll let you turn the hell and let you turn to heaven, and then you'll make your own choice where, we, where you want to go. So obviously he decided first just to go and see the tour, the heaven. So he walks around, he sees so many people dressed in nice garments, they play the harp, they sing, nothing else is happening there. So he looks around, he looks around and he thinks like, it's kind of a little boring here. I would like to know what's happening in the hell. So boom, quite, you know, quickly he's, he's right in the hell, and he looks there like, wow. Lots of people there too. People having fun, swimming in swimming pools, having parties, drinking beer, playing cards. Everybody's having blast. So without hesitation, he says to Peter, "You know what? I made my, my I made my mind. I want to go to hell." Just twinkling on the night, boom! He's right in the hell, and it's all this hot oil. Fire is everywhere around him, and he's so shocked. He says, "What's happening? That's not the hell that I saw." And he's screaming for Peter, "Peter, Peter! What did you do?" And Peter says, that was just a demo version about hell that I show you. <laughs> so you see, we, 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 we joke about it. You know, many people joke about it. For some people, it's a very serious subject. Many pastors and preachers, they preach about hell. Scaring the congregations or some members of the congregation to come to Christ. Because if they don't do that, as the end reward, they will end up in hell. So we see... It's a word, it's a concept that even in 21st century, people use it all over the place. They tweet it, they use it on Facebook, you know, they text it, use it on email, religious circles, even not the religious circles, even in government circles, they use this word, hell. So it's very popular in our society. And to all of us, you know, we've been following every single monthly Bible study, you all know the origin of everything that happened. As Pastor Murray explained when he was having his Bible study about the immortality of the soul 
Everything started right back in Genesis chapter 3. So you open your Bible in Genesis chapter 3. There is a very short verse, but very powerful. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 4, it says, Then the serpent said to the woman, There's one short sentence. You will not surely die. And just from right, right there from this concept, all this false doctrine spread out, starting with the immortality of the soul. If you have immortal soul, then obviously you have to have a concept. What's going to happen with good people and bad people? That's where you have the concept of heaven, and that's where you have the concept of hell. But, like Pastor Watson said last month, during his Bible study, when he was explaining the concept of heaven, he said, if you just top this one doctrine down, immortality of the soul, the other, other, all the other doctrines just can't exist by itself. They'll all fall apart. And probably all of us, at one time or the other in our lives, attended a funeral, right? Even young people. Have you attended a funeral? And older of us, probably more than five or six or ten, right? If you attended a funeral, what I noticed, have you ever heard during the funeral, a pastor, a minister, or a preacher would say to the congregants, Brothers, I'm so sorry for our sister, for our brother, but this person is going to hell. Have you ever heard something like that? So how is it possible that all this preacher who spent so much time and tried to teach about this concept if you don't believe or you're not a good person or something, whatever, you will end up in hell. And during the funerals, everybody's afraid to say that, sorry, brothers and sisters, I'm so sorry, but I, you know, the way how I know this person, the way how the person lived life, I have to declare to you that this person is going straight to hell. And there's nothing I can do about it. I've never heard. In my funeral. I tried to Google it to find it. Maybe somebody somewhere in this crazy world society. I couldn't find it. So I don't know what's going on further. But if there is such a concept as hell. That somebody should be going there. Right? At one time or another. But I guess no one wants to go there. And you know. Also the very interesting thing. I attended some funerals. That the minister or pastor. Was doing the you know. Was saying some you know past story about the person who died that I was wondering sitting like what kind of person is he talking about is it about the dead person is it something you know about the other person what I mean by that I remember we are attending one funeral and the priest was describing this person so beautifully how great this person was how wonderful this person was you know how, how great you know mom and all this and I'm thinking like that's not the same person that I used to know so somebody must be wrong here right so this, this concept of hell is so crazy, but on the other hand, it's so popular. And people are very passionate about it. Some Christians are very passionate about it. So what we'll do today, as always, we'll go back, we'll look at some historical context, all this doctrine of hell, where it had its origin, okay? We'll also look in the Bible, because with the, when we look at the hell, there's also a Greek word, which in English it's called everlasting. It comes in two forms, everlasting fire or everlasting punishment, which is also many times mistranslated from the Greek language to the English language and giving us the, the confusing meaning when it comes to this eternal punishment, right? Then we'll examine this 
English word hell, which comes in three different Greek forms a little bit later on. And at the end, we'll look at the proof text that people who believe in hell, most of the time, 95%, will go to the same scripture, to the same verse, just to prove it, that hell exists. So the starting point. Don't have to guess, right? Where was the starting point? We all know from our Bible studies, every single one that we had so far, the starting point is the Greek philosophy. The starting point is the Greek mind, Greek philosophy and mythology that people put into the Hebrew Bible. That's how people interpret the Hebrew Bible through the Greek mind. That's where all the confusion comes from. And it's not a shock, it's not a surprise that first church fathers, the first centuries, the second centuries, all of them, most of them, were Greek philosophers. So when they come into the faith, when they read this book, Hebrew book, they read this scripture through the Greek mind. So they put their own interpretation into this book using the Greek philosophy. But they actually this doctrine of hell spread the most you know widely over the you know entire Mediterranean Sea around the fourth and fifth century. And the person responsible for spreading this doctrine, the false doctrine of hell, was the Bishop of Hippo by name uh, Augustine. He was a very powerful preacher, very well-known preacher. And the only, only problem with Augustine, as I mentioned before in my other sermon that I did, he was not educated in a Greek language. So he didn't know Greek at all. He only used for his interpretation the Latin Bible and Greek. So he only used he only used for his study the Bible available at his time, which was the translations to Latin by Jerome. That's the only version that he used. So he couldn't go and verify the Latin Bible, he couldn't go and verify with the Greek manuscript of the New Testament. So he was not aware. So he spread a gospel. He spread a gospel. He spread a, he spread a doctrine that he couldn't prove it in his original language. That's what I'm saying. And he was a very powerful, powerful preacher around the fourth century. So Augustine, I have a passage here about Augustine from a well-known Catholic historian, Peter Brown. And he says, Augustine's failure to learn Greek was monumentous casualty of the late Roman educational system. He will become the only Latin philosopher in antiquity to be virtually ignorant of Greek. Just didn't care about Greek. He preached about many doctrines, but he didn't care about Greek. Just imagine if all of us here today, we try to prove a doctrine, and then we will say, we look at some English words and say, you know what, we don't have to go to Greek. Just use the English words and try to prove something. Then we will get like, you know, hell is hell. That's how it's translated, right? So we always have to go a little bit deeper. We have to go to the original language that is sent to others. And what happened with Augustine? The scriptures that turned his life around. He became such a strong proponent of hell. was in Matthew chapter 25. I'd like you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And in verse 
41. Actually, we don't have to read all of it. Just go to verse 45. Then he will, then, that, then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did, as it, as, as much as you did not do it to one of the least of them, you did not do it to me. And verse 46 is very important. And this will go away into everlasting punishment, everlasting and punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there are, when you look at the scriptures, the last verse, he concluded, there are just two options. It's either eternal life on one hand. If you don't have eternal life, then he just assumes there must be eternal punishment. And that's what most readers will get from this verse if you don't know the Greek. Either eternal life, or we just read, read in my New King James Version, everlasting punishment. How can the everlasting punishment everlasting? But that's what people think. That's what the concept of hell. It's so easy to creep in into the Bible, into the people's understanding, and especially if we're educated in the Greek philosophy. But, the Greek word here, that we look like eternal, everlasting, it comes from the Greek word Ionios, A-I-O-N-I-O-S, or A-I-O-N, which means basically age. Age or age abiding. But it's often translated in our Bible like everlasting. In most English Bibles, right? Everlasting. And the Hebrew word equivalent for this everlasting, this Ionian, is the Hebrew word Olam, O-L-A-M, which can have two meanings. Dr. Bollinger, in the Companion Bible, he says, Ion, A-I-O-N, is an age, or an age time, the duration which can be indefinite or may be limited. But it depends on the context, on the context, on the verse from the text. So you have to make judgment. For example, God is eternal. doesn't have beginning, it doesn't have an end. But you have to, we have to assume that really the context of the Bible. For example, a period of time that never ends, meaning everlasting or eternal, or a period of time that begins, has a beginning, and has an ending. And, you know, when Augustine looking at this thing, he made a simple mistake because he didn't know the English. He just assumed that punishment is everlasting. There's no beginning and there's no end. Eternal. So, for example, the same word here, if you're going to use the same exact word, everlasting punishment, it will just use across every single word that comes. I have like a no, no meaning in the other verses. Let's go to Jude chapter, Jude verse 7, at the end of the Bible. If you open your Bible to Jude, And in Jude verse 7, it just reads, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to this, having been given over to sexual immortality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The same word, eternal fire, is just the same here, A-I-O-N, that I later later that I told you before. So basically, when you look at this verge of something, you can't just conclude that Sodom and Gomorrah is burning in eternal fire because the fire is gone a long time ago, centuries ago, millennia ago, 
So we can use the same application for eternal or this iron. We can use in every single appearance in the Bible. We have to make a decision based on the context. If it's just the age abiding or it's everlasting. When we describe God, it's usually no beginning and no ending. But in other circumstances, judgment is a time abiding. It's got a beginning and has an end. It can last. Judgment cannot last for eternity without no beginning and no ending. So that's the, that's the first word that Augustine made mistake. This, you know, this Greek word, ionian, right? So now let's move further in our studies and we'll look at the three different words in the Greek manuscript. They're mostly, most often are translated into our English Bibles just as hell. And especially when you have the old King James Version, every single one is translated hell, hell, and hell. In some of the newer versions, some of the translators try to correct the mistakes. They either put the Greek version of the word or try to use some other translation. So what are the degree words, Greek words that are here in the new manuscript that, you know, in English are just simply translated to hell? It's just Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. So we'll cover each of them a little bit. So let's say Hades. There's just one word alone appeared ten times in the New Testament. We can go through all the scriptures and try to look at every single verse because that would take us at least two or three hours just to look at every single verse, right? But basically, Hades have a two different meaning for Greek and for Hebrews. For Greek, Hades would have a, like a meaning where that's the place where people, where people died and the spirits, departed spirits, that's where they will go in Greek language to Hades. That's how would be the Greek understanding. Now the equivalent to this word, the Hebrew word, equivalent to this Hades would be, would be Hebrew word, Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And when, 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 when Hebrew mind would read some passage like that, to them it would just mean grave or a pit. That's it. Everybody goes where they die. That's the place where people came up from, and that's their place where people are going back from the ground. That's it. That's what it means. And, and in many Greek mythology, this word Hades was a place of conscious torture, torment, and hard labor. There was no such a concept in a Hebrew language, in a Hebrew word. There was never any concept like that. So you can only imagine what would happen if you're educated, you were educated in Greek mythology, and suddenly you come up with the Greek manuscript of the New Testament, you see this word, you make the connections right away. You make the connections right away that, oh, there must be a hell. It's so easy to connect, right? And... Let's just look at one example of this word, Hades, which is in Matthew chapter 11. As I mentioned, there are ten times, mentioned ten times in the New Testament. But just look at one, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse, let's start in verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. And he goes on and on and on. But let's just skip down to verse 23. And new Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to, and my new King James Version, now this verse is corrected, it's not hell anymore, but it says Hades. So they knew that, they realized how mistake they make in the old King James Version, so they just translated it to Hades. 
For if the mighty works which were done, which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So when you read verses like that, it just, just doesn't make any sense that these people will be tortured, eternal punishment, and now suddenly they will come up in a judgment. It just doesn't make any sense. doesn't make any point, right? So when you come with the Hebrew mind and Hebrew understanding of the Bible, verses like that would never give you any problems. But if you read texts like that with the Greek mind, with the Greek influence, you will look at this thing and say, like, wow, Hades. I know what Hades is. And you try to put your own interpretations into the Hebrew Bible. So let's move on from Hades for the other words, which is Gehenna. These words also appear about 12 times in the Greek manuscript of the New Testament. And in also, when you have the older Bible, especially, New, especially King James Version, every single time that this word appeared in the King James Version Bible, it will appear as a hell. Just hell, okay? And this Greek is easy to find its meaning because it comes from the, the, the meaning Gehenna comes from the Greek term of Bali of Hinon, which every Jew were aware what this term means. And at Jesus' time, at this time, just close to Jerusalem, there was a big garbage dump when everybody would, would bring all the garbage from the city of Jerusalem and would then just dump it into this valley. And there was a continual fire burning there because people were bringing garbage day and night. People were throwing dead animals, even dead criminals, just right there. And you can also imagine when you have a huge, you know, huge pile of garbage, you can also imagine all this, you know, like having all these uh, rats and, you know, worms and you name it, right? All the scavengers, raccoons. <laughs> they don't have raccoons in Jerusalem. I don't think so, but <laughs> you see my point, right? But to the Hebrew mind, to the Hebrew mind, to the Jewish person, when Jesus was describing something like that, do would make the connections right away. Let's give you a little bit historical background on this valley, what this wild valley used to be used before. If you go to Second Chronicles, chapter 28, Second Chronicles chapter 28. Second Chronicles chapter 28 in verse 1. One of the famous king, Ahaz. He was very creative. He was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And obviously he did not do what was right in the sight of Lord, as his father David had done. And in verse 3, he says, He burned incense in the valley of son of Haman, and burned his children in the fire, according to the abomination of the nation, whom the Lord has cast out before the children of Israel. That's how horrible this king was. He burned not just somebody's children, his own children in the fire. Okay? If you just skip a few pages to page 33, to Second Chronicles chapter 33, and it's basically the same, the same story in verse 4. How horrible this king was. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord has said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his son to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Heman. He practiced shoot-saying and used witchcraft and sorcery and consoled medium and spirits. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. That's how horrible. And, you know, most of the Jewish people, they knew well the history of what happened. They knew King Ahaz and how horrible, how corrupted he is. 
and how how he introduced the pagan worship into the true worship of of of, of the Bible, right? And even Prophet Jeremiah, many years later, Prophet Jeremiah, he would write in chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. In verse 35. And he will write, And then build the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Heman, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. And even God says, Which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. That's how horrible it was. And at Jesus' time, they didn't do the sacrifices in this valley anymore. But what they did with the valley, they make a big, huge garbage den. And that's where it was the, the fire going all the time. And when Christ come along trying to explain some point, he will stop and point to this valley and he says, Judgment of God is coming. If you want to do what King Ahaz did, that's how you're going to end up. You're going to end up in this valley. You're going to be burned to ashes, right? So if you go, just give you one example about this, uh, in Mark chapter 9, this one word that it used, Gehenna, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And in verse 47, when Christ would explain his point, and he would say, if your eye cause you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with an eye with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hellfire. So in my Bible, the translation is hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So the people put that warranted, unwarranted interpretation to something like that, that never existed, like in today's society, how people interpret and they say, oh, there is a real hellfire, where people are burned continuously, and, you know, this fire never stops. It's going for eternity, right? Which is just nonsense. What Christ was saying, it's just better for you if you want to enter the kingdom of God. If it just, you know, cut your hand, if it makes you sinful, to cause you to sin, it's better if you enter the kingdom with one hand than, you know, you my old death, you may all be died, just, just, just disappear, just like that in this valley of, 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 of burning garbage. That's it. So, as I said, this word appears about 12 times in the New Testament. So, we don't have time to go through every single verse. If you want some reference later, I can give you because I have all the scriptures written here on my, in my notes. And the next, the, the, next, the next one is Tartarus. And this word is only used once in the New Testament. And it still gives uh, all these experts, you know, confusion what exactly the word means. But we can have some idea. I think we have, you know, better idea than most of them. Because this one word appears in Second Peter chapter 4. Second Peter chapter four. Second, Pe- Second Peter chapter two and verse four. When Peter writes here, he says, "For if God did not spare angels who sin, but cast them down to hell, and there is the same English word hell, which is Tartarus, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment." That's it. We don't have to put anything more or take away whatever it says, the verse says. What it just basically says is that God put all these demons, all the evil spirits, 
He confined them in a space that's going to hold them ready till the judgment day is going to come. That's it. You don't have to put anything more into this than whatever it is. So, as I said, this doctrine is so common to Christian belief. It's not just common to you know, major Christianity around this globe. This doctrine, Muslims believe this doctrine. Even Jews to some degree believe in this doctrine of hell. It's just such a common belief among all these faiths, three major faiths on this earth. It's just amazing, but to true Christians, when they have God's Holy Spirit, when they interpret the Bible in a God's way, to the Hebrew mind, the sense just jump out of it that is actually nonsense. It's actually not true. See, the way how I look at it, people say that everything in this Bible express God and express God's character. And especially, specifically, God's love. Wouldn't you agree? God's law describes God, who God is. God's law describes what is God's character. So I would ask anybody if you can find a one single law in the entire Bible that God ever, ever allowed torture. Just go and find if there is a one single permission that God would give to anybody that would allow a torture. It's not there. The harshest penalty that God prescribed is that penalty. If you're so evil, let's say you decided to just kidnap somebody, kidnap somebody, God just hates such events that would cause this person, kidnapper, to die. Was that penalty for that right away? And all the death penalties were very quick. There was not so much suffering. The worst, was, the worst one was probably stoning. But, as people claim, that God is so loving, God is so merciful, but on the other hand they will say, our God is God of justice, and he will torture people for eternity. It just doesn't make any sense. It's just not in the Bible, it doesn't matter how long or how far you try to find it, it's just not there. God is not in the business trying to torture anybody. Now, many Christians say, you know, when you have debates going scripture after scripture, there are so many of them, just, you know, over 25 or something like that. And we can debate it one scripture at a time, all the time. But after this, they will say, there is one proof text in the Bible that actually Christ himself said that there is something in existence when people die. There is a place where people go where they die. And this one text is in Luke chapter 16, when most of the time people call it the story of the Lazarus and the rich man. So if you go to Luke chapter 16, it's a, lengthy, it's a lengthy story. I have to stick to the story for now. It's a lengthy story. And let's read the story first, okay? Just quickly read them first. It starts in Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to the Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham was afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. I send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your life, lifetime you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil thing. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from there to you cannot, nor can those from, from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And in verse 29, Abraham said to him, They have Moses, and they have prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will not repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, the one rises from the dead. It's a wonderful, beautiful story. And that's a proof text that people use it to claim there is such a place as hell and there is such a place as heaven. And Christ proved himself by talking about this place. But if you just, just first quick look when you read this story, the first thing that comes into, let's say, the things, first thing that came into my mind is just when you look at it, is it possible that a person in hell, according to this story, can communicate with a person who is in heaven. Because you see, there is a communication going on. So people will say, there is no way. Once you're in heaven, in heaven. Once you're in hell, in hell. There's no, you can't see, you can't communicate. But look at this. In this story, they can communicate. They can look at each other. Okay? So, imagine if you're in heaven... Can those people in heaven look down and see all these tormenting people down in hell? Because according to the story here, you can't. So how would you feel if you're the chosen one, if you're the first fruit of whatever you're going to call yourself, and let's say you see your children or your grandparents or your parents or your sister or your brother just sweating bullets down there in hell and asking for help and just saying, hey, I'm having blast." I have this nice one, nice white rope, and I'm just playing my, you know, harp, and I'm, I'm just enjoying myself. And you deserve what you deserve. Sorry, brother. Sorry, sister. I'm having fun. And you know, can they can they hear screams? Imagine that. You try to sleep at night, or actually, you don't. Maybe you don't need to sleep, but you just try to enjoy yourself. And you constantly hear the screamings going from down hell, right? How would that make you feel? It's just, just, just a quick observation when you look at stories like that, right? How people, how people try to point some points that just don't make any sense. And if you're in heaven and somebody's in hell, how would you help a person if you just dip a finger in water and just say, you know, just have it. I'll put it on your lips. How, how much would that be a help to the person who is suffering there for eternity, forever, right? And... What about this one? This one I, I like the met, I like the past. As I mentioned to you guys before about Abraham's bosom, right? 
How large is Abraham's bosom that they contain all the saves there, right? How large it is? How, how can he handle all these people there? But, you know, it's interesting. But now, you know, in my Bible, we'll actually come to there, but look at this. Many people say that this is not a parable. People who claim that you believe in actual existence of hell, they will say, this is not a parable. This is a story. And you know, in my Bible, it's true. In my Bible, when, when I look at the subtitle, it just says the rich man and Lazarus. It doesn't say the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So it's a true story, right? But, just flip, flip a few pages back. Just go to chapter 15. If you have subtitles in your Bibles, that right after chapter 15, the subtitles in my Bible would read, The Parable of the Lost Sheep. That's what my Bible would say, right there. The Parable of the Lost Sheep. So the highlight of this parable, the whole point of this parable of the Lost Sheep comes, comes in verse 7. When Christ says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So that's a parable. Christ is clear. That's a parable. Then in verse, the next one it says, the parable of the lost coin. And it starts right there in verse 15 in verse 8. And my subtitle it says specifically, the parable of the lost coin. And the point of this parable comes in verse 10. Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, that's a parable. The next one. I have subtitled, The Parable of the Last Son. The Parable of the Last Son. And the story of this parable of the Last Son comes in verse 24. The highlight, it says, For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be married. But Christ said, this is just a parable. Okay, it's a parable. Then in verse 13, 16, move to, move on, chapter 16, in verse 13, there is the parable of unjust steward, right? At the beginning of chapter 16, that's my next subtitle says after chapter 16, the parable of unjust steward. And the same thing, in comes verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, for either will, have, will, will hate the one and love the other, or else he will, will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mom. That's the highlight, that's the point of this whole parable story, teaching comes. And then when you, when you move, move over, it comes to verse 19, and it just says, the rich man and Lazarus. It just doesn't say in my subtitle, doesn't say it's a parable. And you will look at this like, wow. But the story just continues right there. Christ is shooting parable after parable after parable after parable. And you know, it's very interesting. You know, I did some digging and I found that, you know, we go back to seven, six centuries. And some of the manuscripts, old, older manuscripts would read something like that. And he spoke another parable. And he would go, there was a certain rich man. Which is totally taken away in the new translation. Just because somebody was biased. And said that this is not a parable. That's a true story that Christ was describing something about existence of two places. Okay. But, why would Christ tell this parable or story, okay? 
Go to verse chapter 15 one more time at the beginning. Look what happened there. What motivated Christ to tell this parable? Chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. That's kind of a problem, right? For some of the righteous people, so to speak. Tax collectors and all the sinners. And verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and sits with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, and that's just a continuation, okay, what Christ was doing. Chapter 16, look at verse 14. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. It's the same story, it's the same thing. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. It's the same thing. Flip, flip back to chapter 13. How bad was the relation between Christ and the leaders at that time? Uh, chapter 13 and verse 28. What did Christ said? There will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth when, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourself trust out. There is the conflict between the leadership and Christ going all the time. The tensions between them. It's just highlight here all the time. And Christ is telling the parables. So we see that's how Christ, that's how Luke described, you know, how, how Christ see the, the leaders of that day. He says they were always lovers of money. They justified themselves before men, esteeming, esteeming themselves ahead of everybody else. They despised the poor. And on and on and on. So if you go to chapter 16. Christ just starts the same thing. He's just telling them another parable story along the way. And this parable story is about the Jewish leadership. About the Pharisees. About the Sadducees. About the priestly class. So let's see. Let's, go to, let's dig a little bit deeper into this story. Verse 19. Let's start one more time. So there is a first player. There was a rich man, and it says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. So just based on this description on this parable, Christ has some people in mind. So he's describing who was wearing, who was wearing purple at that time. Who could afford to wear purple at the time? Kings, princes, rich people. Okay, who was who was who was wearing the white linen? High priests. High priests. So we already know what is, what kind of players he's describing. What's the second guy? Verse 20. He was a beggar whose name was Lazarus. And just before we go to Lazarus, there's also one very important description about this rich man. And it's right here in verse 28. If you just look at verse 28, it says, For I have five brothers that he may testify to them. What would Christ mention just five brothers? Let's say, not, why not one brother or two brothers or twelve brothers? Why he mentioned five brothers? Because this rich man who was clothed in linen, okay, this rich man was Judah. And Judah had five brothers from the first wife of Leah. 
So if you go into the Old Testament, you can check it, right? So he had five brothers. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Isaac, and Zebulun. So five brothers. So if you look at this from the Greek mind, you will see something like, you know, Hades and Guiana and all kind of stuff. But if you go to the Hebrew mind, you look at some descriptions, all connect you with the Old Testament stories, right? There is a meaning. There is something richer than just hell here. Okay, now let's talk about the poor guy, Lazarus. The Lazarus, that's the Greek version of the Hebrew name, which is, which is, and these words always give me hard to pronounce it. I have always hard trouble to pronounce it. Eliezer or Eliezer, how we pronounce it? That's it. So I'll stick to Lazarus, but you know what I mean by it, okay? What is the meaning of this name? God will help. God will help. There is some message, okay? So, when you go into the Bible, and you look familiar with the story of Abraham, one of his most trusted servants was a guy of name Lazarus. You know what I mean? Lazarus. He was a Gentile servant of name of Lazarus. And it says here in the story that he's a that that he has that he was a beggar, and he was this desiring just for eat a little bit crumbles that would fall off from the rich tables, right? We have some descriptions like that, but Christ was talking something about it a little bit in Matthew chapter 15. Just hold your place here in Luke, but go to Matthew chapter 15. And I just love this story. It's one of my favorite stories in chapter 15 here. You know, it started right at the beginning at the verse 15. And it's always there is a conflict. And you know, the, the mother is here discuss at the beginning of chapter 15 what's going to happen if we eat food with unwashed hands. And it is, there is a great debate. And Christ, Christ tried to explain to the, to the Jewish mind that don't worry about eating food with with dirty hands. Something more important is what you have in your heart. And he says, you should, have, you, should, you should love your brother. You should have love for a Gentile people too. And that was something difficult, difficult for them to understand. And just before we go to, this, to the point, it, it, it says here that, and in verse 21, it starts the story. As he's tried to explain all these people, the matter of eating food with clean and clean hands, Jesus wants to show a point to his disciples. And it says in verse 21, that Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So that's a, quite a distance to walk, when you, if you will look at the map. About two days' walk. So he takes his disciples, two days' walk, two days' walk, for something they're going to experience, something they will experience along the way that's going to teach them something along the way. What was the lesson? As they departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon, it's a Gentile country, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from a region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciple came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. They didn't say, help her, master, help her. She's crying, help her. They just said the same Jewish mind 
She's a Gentile. She's like a dog. We don't need her. Just send her away. Don't help her, right? And look how Jesus, how Jesus was playing with their mind. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, how many people would be offended at this statement? He's not talking to this Canaanite woman. He's talking to his disciples. Because that's the language that they would express, the same language. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. That's a horrible statement. He's not talking to this Canaanite woman. He knows he's got a great faith. He's okay. He's worried about his disciples. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fell from their master table. Even then, Gentile can be blessed for little crumbs that fall from the Jewish people. See what I mean? That's, that's the, and Jesus answered and said to her, O oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from the very hour. And look, and the next verse it says, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up to the mountain. So he went, took two days, to took his disciples for a journey, just one little story about Canaan and woman, and he's going all the way back. Why would he would do that? Get them walk for two days, just talk to a Canaan woman for maybe a few minutes, maybe ten minutes, and now he's walking back. Just to teach them a lesson, right? Just go back to Lazarus. Crumbs fall off the table. See, this Canaan woman, she backed. She was Gentile. She didn't have anywhere to go. She heard about Jewish rabbi, or she heard about Jesus. And she backed him. She, she knew it, that her only resource, her only help is Jesus Christ. That's where she had all the firm faith put in Christ. Something the Jewish people didn't have. The Gentile woman expressed full faith. See, in opposition to Pharisees, in opposition to Pharisees, she had, she had amazing, humble spirit. Most Pharisees, which Jesus would address them like that, they would just turn away and walk away. It says, I don't want to be part in any kingdom like that that you call me a dog. She was very humble. Her daughter was sick. She would do everything for her daughter. And in that case that we just read, this woman was willing to be a spiritual beggar. She's desiring just the single crumbs that fall off the table. Not a full meal, just a single crumbs. That's how hungry she was for the word of God. When the Jewish people had it, and they didn't want it. So here, go back to Lazarus. The Lazarus is associated with dogs, Gentile. He's a spiritual beggar, obviously dependent on this rich guy. He was a religious reader. Whatever he wishes, his wishes was, he would throw a crumbs here and there, just feed him whatever they desire, instead of giving a full meal. So look what happened. The whole story, the whole point of this whole parable here about the rich man and Lazarus, it's, it comes here in verse 20, 25. Now Christ is saying that you might be good now, you might be fine now, but the time is coming that all these things will be reversed. You think you're so richly blessed now? You think that you know you can you can rely on you know genealogy that you belong to Abraham, father and stuff like that. But all things will change. And you know you think you're so sophisticated, you are so educated that your leader will, will do then then you'll become a leader forever. What is Christ saying here? Just don't rely 
on genealogy. Don't rely that you know you are a father of Abraham. Don't be proudful that you have Moses and you have his law and all these things. And let me just show you actually a few things like how proud they were to have Moses as the love giver. How proud they were to be a children of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. I will read you this verse from a New Living Translation. It sounds so much better. But in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9, Christ would say to the Jewish people, he would say, Don't just say to each other, we are saved, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. But they were so prideful. Oh, we are children of Abraham. Oh, we have Moses. Who are you to tell us what to do? And I'll show you another one. In John chapter 8, in John chapter 8 and verse 34, And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. He's trying to explain to them. And in verse 37 he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendant, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have sinned with my, what I have sinned with my father, and you, and you do what you have sinned with your father. And verse 39. Look what happened to them. Verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would, do the, you, would do, you would do the works of Abraham. So we see they were always so prideful of their you know, existence, who they were. And they thought that it was going to get them to the kingdom of God. No, that was not just enough. John chapter 5. They were so proud of having Moses as their lawgiver, right? In John chapter 5, in verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus was always knocking them on their heads and saying, you know, you think you're, you're so important, but you're not. You're not. You're so proud and arrogant. You think you're like Abraham descendants. You claim Moses to be your teacher, but you don't understand the law. You don't apply the law. You don't live the way how we're supposed to do. So we see... The climax of the story comes in here in verse 24 in Luke, chapter, in Luke chapter 16. Then he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And you know what's so interesting about this verse? That even though this guy is tormented, he never asked Abraham, Abraham, can you just take me with me? Why don't you take me? He never asked for it. He's so proud and so arrogant. He says, please, I will do everything. Just take me to your place where you are. He just said, no, just send somebody. Just send somebody so somebody just could, you know, just dip my, my lips with the water so I'll feel better. And, you know, when you look at the Jewish people today, they're exactly at the same level. Most of them, they don't want to hear about Christ. Most of them are very hateful when you bring the name of Christ. The only thing they ask God that God will lose in their punishment. And it's going on and on for centuries now. They don't want to be punished, but they don't want to believe. So that's the message. And eventually Christ says to them, even if I am resurrected, if I come to you, he said, you will still not believe in me. And that's exactly what happened. Christ was resurrected. And 
until this day, most of the Jewish people don't want to believe in Christ. And that's exactly what Christ prophesied. If you go to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43, that's exactly what would happen. In, in verse 43, Matthew chapter 21, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And look what happened later when Christ was resurrected. All this educated one, all the priestly class, Sadducees, the Lord the status, the temple was destroyed, the Pharisees, the lost as leadership status, and look who become the leaders, the fishermen. The lowest of the lowest of society become the leaders of the next church, Peter, John, and along the way, the Gentile people. That's exactly what Christ prophesied in this parable of the Lazarus and the rich man. So we can go on and on, brethren, but we don't have much time. So I'll stop right here and just say a few words just to conclude it that, you know, we live in society that is so strongly influenced by the Greek philosophy, the, the Greek concept of life. Like I mentioned before, even the word democracy comes from the Greek fathers, okay? And for us, even for Christians, we have had such a hard time to read these words through the Hebrew mind, through the godly mind, and how to interpret that. That's why we have such a, so many strong beliefs. Immortality of the soul. As Pastor Mori mentioned, once we, Pastor Watson also mentioned, once we topple, once we put this one doctrine down, a bunch of others will just fall apart. And we know from the Bible that that's exactly what it is. So I don't have much time, but it's a very interesting topic. I find it very interesting to research it. And you know, there's so much more in some booklets that we have it here. And it's worth it to read it, some technical stuff. But we're running out of time. My hour is up. So, if you have any questions, if you have any questions, hopefully I'll be able to answer. If not, then somebody else will be able to answer, right? We should, we should, we're supposed to work as a team, as a group, so. Was it beneficial first? All right. Any questions? Yes, Brother Ray. Not difficult ones. <laughs> You know, you can imagine when, let's say, you were just the normal citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Let's say a normal citizen of the town of Burlington today. You just get caught up in the society that just lives around you. And you become so evil generations after generation that you don't even notice. Most people today don't even see how evil we are. They say that everything is fine and everything is good. If they had a chance, maybe, what happened... To the, to the Jewish people back then, if they had a chance that Christ would step back into history and go to these people, to Sodom and Gomorrah, and explain to them how sinful behavior they're engaging, 
Well, the Bible says they'll probably repent. But they didn't have this chance. They didn't have this opportunity, okay? Now, in Christ's time, God himself stepped down, teaching to his people, and they did not accept him. Not at all. They tried to fight him every way they could. And every single obstacle to show around his, you know, his foot whenever he was walking by. And Christ tells the story. He said, in one day in the resurrection, when these people will come up to life, there will be a witness against you. Because they will probably, you know, probably faster believe in me than you guys believe in me. So when it comes to punishment, the lake of fire is an interesting concept. We can have discussion a little later what I think what the lake of fire is. But I'm not going to show it here to the public in general, right? But it's absolutely. The punishment will be so... The punishment for the Jewish people is so strong that they see the punishment even to this day. And you can see, they have a hard time to find any place where they can live in peace. God's judgment. That's how harsh God's judgment is on these people. And they still don't want to repent. And, you know, people say about the land of Israel today, how blessed is this land. I don't see any blessings there. Shells are flying almost every single day. Every single man and woman capable must serve in military continuously till the age whatever, 55 or something. It's not a peaceful nation. It will never be till they repent and ask God, and God will come back and lead them into repentance. So that's what it is. It is harsh for them. It will be harsher for them. And for Sodomites and Gomorrah. I, I know it's hard to believe, but that's, that's just the reality, right? Sister Jennifer? Thank you, Jennifer. That's, you know, that's great. You see, that's what we're always talking about, the gifts that God gave to the church at first. God gave people the gift of wisdom, right? And some people, like, you know, let's say imagine me. Imagine me coming in front of you, and let's say one day I come on one Sabbath, and I speak perfect English. That would just like, wow, that's a gift from God, right? That's exactly what happened back then. People didn't know how to read, but God, God gave them, the, 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 you know, the power of speaking in tongues power of memory. They were quoting scriptures. They were saying things, convincing things to people that people have no clue. And they just look at it and says, how can a guy like Jan speak so eloquently and let's say in a Hebrew language and explain the scriptures to us? That's why God gave so many gifts at the beginning of the church growing because it had to spread the message along and across. And later as this church grew bigger and bigger and bigger and Greek influence gets stronger and stronger and stronger, it's just there were little pockets of remnant staying all over the place. And look at today's society, we have the same thing. Just a few little flock that exist, even though we have all the technology, we have all the means to check everything we say and do, and we're just so lazy, intellectually and spiritually, that we just don't bother. We'll just have one guy study and give us all the need, and we'll just listen. Make sense? 
a little bit. Any other questions? Pastor Agent? So, to all of you, I know that some of you, you love the Gospel of Luke. And I love this Gospel too. And because, if you notice from the beginning to the end, it's only Luke who gives some of the stories that are not present in the Bible. The story of Centurion, who was a Roman. The story of the, you know, like the Canaanite woman is also in Matthew's, in Matthew, in Matthew, Matthew Gospel too. But because Luke was a doctor, and I think Luke is the guy who wrote the, who wrote the gospel to basically the Gentile people, most of them. I think that's why the stories are so beautifully described there to the Gentile minds. The Jews couldn't see it, but there's a Gentile woman who had some kind of glimpse of something miraculous that's happening. And that's why the, the gospel of Luke is so wonderful to read, at least to me, let's say to me coming from my origin. I always love the gospel of Luke. And if you read deeper into the stories, and you try to figure out many others, and you try to figure out why would Jesus would say some, such, a, such a thing, it's just he wants to say that God's love for a Gentile is also strong, and it's kind of God wants to bring the Gentile in as much as the Jewish people. So that's why I think the Gentile gospel, gospel of, of, of Luke is a specifically written story to Gentile people like, like me. Any other questions? Okay. So we'll have a break. What time do you want to resume with our normal church service? Quarter to? It gives us 35 minutes. Yeah, so we'll have a quick meal. And okay. So we'll, meet, we'll be back here quarter to. Thank you so much.